Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. Heart disease in dogs and cats, it's more common than you might think. How, how can you tell that that's coming? What are some of the symptoms or signs? And they're different in dogs compared to cats. And then what can you do about it? And the answers are somewhat different in dogs compared to cats. The man who knows the answer, at least one man who does, is a veterinary cardiologist, Dr. Brian Scanson. But first, Dr. Vully Parthasarathy is here veterinary behaviorist. And that is where I begin. What is a veterinary behaviorist? Thank you so much for having me here today. Um, a veterinary behaviorist is a licensed veterinarian who has had extensive uh, postgraduate education in behavior. So we l- focus on learning about additional psychopharmacology, uh, neurotransmitters, how the brain works, um, also neuroendocrine systems, um, medical conditions that can lead to behavioral changes, and how to diagnose and treat behavioral problems. Most veterinary residents are in their residency for three years or more, so it's a very extensive program in addition to additional education that's needed, um, mentored cases, um, case report write-ups and publications. Which is incredible. Because, and the great thing is the college, by the way, veterinary behaviorists, what, what you said is all true. But in essence, it's a veterinary cardiologist, a veterinary neurologist. It's a specialty just like those, veterinary ophthalmologists. The list goes on. Yeah. And it's no different in that sense. Exactly. If, if you want to, if probably the closest um, equivalent to what you were talking about would be veterinary psychiatrist or veterinary psychologist. In sort of the veterinary version of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I want to talk about some of the common behavior problems that dogs have. Mm-hmm. Nuisance problems that are sometimes <laughs> more than nuisance problems, right? Yeah. I mean, sometimes dogs are even given up to shelters for some of these issues we're about to talk about because when the human animal bond fractures, I suppose that is what you most want to avoid have happen. Exactly. And, and like you mentioned, behavior problems is one of the main reasons why pets are relinquished um, from their homes, rehomed, relinquished to shelters. And it's a really big topic that is all encompassing because there's behavior is going to happen with every dog and every person. Yeah. Um, so uh, thankfully, the vast majority of behaviors that are problematic are behaviors that are normal behaviors, but just are nuisance behaviors. And usually nuisance behaviors because they're occurring in a situation that the client doesn't want, the owner doesn't want. They may be perfectly normal behavior for the dogs, but they're not where the client wants it to be. So an example would be for the dog who's digging in the yard. They may be a dog where digging in the yard is a perfectly normal dog behavior, but the person who's spent hundreds of dollars to have that beautiful green yard doesn't want their dog to dig. So, All right. So what do you do about it? Now the rose bushes aren't the rose bushes anymore. So next, what happens? Right, right. So there are a couple of things that when we are having a nuisance, a behavior, that problem, um, the first, one of the first things that I try to assess is whether or not this is an actual normal behavior, which is just being done in a way that the, in a situation that the client doesn't want, um, or is this actually an, moving towards more of a problematic, but more abnormal behavior that we need to address with some 
with some higher level treatment. Um, so if we have a, so like I was saying before, for digging in the yard, that's a pretty normal behavior for most dogs. So what I tend to do for any sort of nuisance behavior is that it's very important to make sure that the dog has other outlets for their energy and for their, their overall mental curiosity. So making sure that they have adequate mental enrichment. So interactive toys, going ahead and finding, you know, using their, their brain for good instead of evil. <laughs> As I like to tell clients, um, making sure that they have adequate exercise, which is a pro, which is age, breed, and individual specific, because um, there is that adage that the that the tired dog is a happy dog. That isn't always true. That's a totally different topic. But I just wanted to put out there that exercising your dog to the ground is not necessarily going to solve your problems. However, um, what if you have so if you have a terrier, okay. for example, that terrier mm-hmm. is born to dig. Mm-hmm. So what do you do about the problem? Maybe based on what you said, find if it's possible, it may not be an alternative place in the yard where the dog yeah. can dig. Yeah, exactly. So so what we do to to treat these behaviors is we first find figure out a way to prevent them from practicing the behavior that you don't want. And so by practicing that behavior, by preventing practicing, what you're doing is maybe putting a fence around your dog bush temporarily so that your dog can't dig in them, or maybe take your dog on leash temporarily so that they can't get out there and dig on their own and then provide a way that they can provide that they can do an alternate behavior or practice that behavior, but in a place that the client wants. Um, so have that outlet available to them. So maybe have a place that is set aside that you can take the dog over. And then when they start digging, really encourage them, maybe hide stuff in there for them to dig. So get allowing them to have that outlet, but doing it in a way that is also okay for the person. All right. What about, let's take another one, counter surfing. That's a very common issue. Not so much for chihuahuas, but for bigger dogs, uh, what do you do about it? Yeah, I will say I've had a couple of counter-surfing chihuahuas when they've been really creative about how to get up there. That's um, crazy. Yeah, so counter-surfing essentially is when a dog is kind of putting their front feet up on the counter and looking around and maybe finding something. And the reason why it is a persistent behavior is because dogs are very – because dogs will get up there and then maybe they'll find something. And that sets them up to keep checking because maybe they, maybe they'll, a few times they'll check, nothing will be there, but maybe there'll be a stake. So it's worth it to them to keep checking. So we want to, again, prevent them from practicing that behavior because practice makes perfect. So we want to help them prevent that practice and then maybe teach them. And that could be done with baby gates or keeping them out of the kitchen or maybe if it's during food prep, you know, confining, confining them during food prep time and then then if you wanted to teach them an alternate behavior, something that's incompatible. So maybe it is that they learn to lie on a particular spot in the kitchen so that they can then learn that, hey, if I sit on the spot, I get a bunch of treats and then I can stay there and not worry about getting up and jumping up on the counter because stuff is eventually going to come to me. So preventing and then teaching something incompatible. And when they're lying down, maybe giving them something, not only a treat, but giving them a treat to really work on, Mm -hmm. such as a food puzzle or something stuffed like low-fat, low-salt peanut butter inside a Kong toy, something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And so making sure – so giving them something to work on also helps with that mental stimulation part of things in addition to kind of keeping them in place. Right, right. Uh, what about jumping at the door? Mm-hmm. I, I just answered some – I wonder if your answer is going to be similar to mine that I gave a reporter for some magazine recently. So 
Go ahead. It's a common, common issue. Yeah. So, so it's really common for dogs, especially when people come in the, in the door that they'll jump up on them because they're happy to see them. And I want to assume these are dogs that are happy to see yes. you. Yes. Aggressive dogs would be a whole different answer, a whole right, different circumstance. Right. So for those dogs that are happy, so happy over the top to see grandma, they're about to knock her over. Right. What do you do? Yeah, so, so again, we think about prevention. And so thinking about, okay, how do we keep Fluffy from jumping up on grandma? And that might be that we put a baby gate in front of the door so that grandma can come in and, ba- and Fluffy can't reach them. My answer so was we'll- so different. Well, I haven't gotten to all the I said, Well, I said never invite grandma over or allow her in the house. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So we can have – so other options can be uh, putting Fluffy in a, a separate room or having them behind the baby gate in a certain area and maybe letting – I mean, after everyone has settled in and grandma is sitting down, then maybe let Fluffy come over to say hi. So we're preventing it. And then for some people – for some families, that's enough. Um, and that, that deals with the problem and that's awesome. So for other families who want to do a little bit more because they don't want to put up baby gates all the time or they don't want the baby gates up, they can teach Fluffy to event, to stay in maybe a particular spot when grandma comes in or maybe teach them to keep all four feet on the ground. Again, reinforcing the behaviors that we want with things that the dog really likes and gradually introducing those, those high excitement uh, triggers like grandma and other people coming into the door in a gradual fashion so that your dog can be successful in them coming over. I still say just don't allow grandma to come over, no problem. But what we didn't answer is why, no, it's clear why dogs counter-surf. They've had an experience finding something up there, and then based on what you said, they learn from that experience. So don't answer yet, but I want to know why dogs jump up at the door when we come in or somebody they love comes in, and also barking. So we have now more deliveries than ever before in the history of the world. So why are those dogs now barking more than ever before? We'll find out when we come back right here on WGN. Dr. Vali Parthasarathy is here, and she is a veterinary behaviorist, and we are talking about common dog problems. Are they really... I put that really wrong, didn't I? Because it's not a problem to the dog. It's a problem for us. In these cases of what we're talking about, yeah, we're talking about normal behaviors that are, are very dog typical, but they're occurring in contexts that the person don't li- doesn't like or the people that the dog is interacting with doesn't like. So when we come home or the kids come home or, as described earlier, if we're still allowing grandma in the house when she comes, uh, why do dogs jump on people? They jump on people because for a couple of different reasons. Big one is excitement. But the reason why these dogs at least are jumping is because they want to say hello. They want to come and greet people. They want to get that attention. Um, just like you'd want to say, you know, when your friends, when your loved one comes to your house, you want to give them a hug. Right. Um, this is what the dogs are doing. They're wanting to greet and they're wanting to, to interact. And so what happens is that in some cases, maybe they get scolded. In some cases, maybe they get pushed off. So what are we, cases, what are we communicating to those dogs who we, you've read it, you've had clients tell you, I'm sure, use a choke collar and go to the dog or put your knee up in the dog's chest. What are we communicating then? Well, we're communicating in those cases, um, depending on the dog, um, that can make them really start becoming afraid of greeting new people because when they do bad things happen, especially if you have a sensitive dog. But if you have a dog who who's like, hey, yeah, I got need, whatever, I still want to say hello, you can still have reinforcement of that behavior through these seemingly negative consequences because the dog still wants the attention and it's still negative attention. And the big thing is, is that 
you know, maybe they'll get sort of these negative or ignored or pushed away or whatever, but there are going to be times that someone reaches down and pets Fluffy. And so that in itself is enough to continue to drive this behavior and maintain it. Because they want the attention. Exactly. Now, uh, I can't tell you how many times I think the dog's name must be no, because that's all the people say is no, 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 no. And it's obviously, I mean, that has gone on for five years. Right. It obviously is not working. Right, right. So um, when I when I have clients that find that they're saying no a lot, um, one of the things I try to tell them is that telling no doesn't necessarily tell your dog what to do. And it doesn't always stop the dog from doing what they're doing. So figuring out a way to prevent them from doing the behavior so you're not saying no. Prevention helps not just the dog and the dog's learning, but it also helps the client and breaks the, the cycle that the client has of saying no to the dog. And by being able to – and and then it, the other thing that we consider is if the dog is about to do something maybe that the client isn't really excited about, um, interrupting it with some sort of sound like a kissy sound or a pop, 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 pop. Um, getting the dog's attention and redirecting to something the dog knows how to do and re rewarding for that, then can be at least telling the dog what you'd like them to do and then figuring out how do I prevent this from happening in the future. So, you know, if you need to interrupt it, um, get a hold of your dog, maybe put the dog behind a baby gate because you've forgotten they're jumping on grandma, you can you go ahead and stop the behavior. But then they figure out how do we prevent it or how do we teach something different in the future? I think 612 deliveries might be the average uh, the person gets now, right? I mean, between uh, Amazon and UPS and between FedEx and between the the food services that now come oh, to yeah. our house and everything else, right? Yeah. And if you had a dog that was barking before the pandemic, <laughs> now that dog is having a good old time, or is it a good old time? Why? What do we do about dogs barking at the window, at the door, and why are they doing that in the first place? So territorial behavior or barking because of of being in your territory um, is a normal behavior for most dogs. And for most dogs, they're kind of, they're alert barking. They're saying, Hey, Hey, someone's here. Um, and those dogs oftentimes are happy to see people, but you do have dogs who are really upset to see people as well. And they're saying, Hey, Hey, go away. Um, and for those dogs, if the delivery person comes and they're bark, 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 barking and then the delivery person drops off their stuff and leaves, in the dog's perspective, they've chased that person off. And so that makes them feel better. Um, for the person, for the dog who's just barking and excited, every time someone comes over, they're going to be barking and excited. Um, so that excitement is kind of maintaining that behavior. In either it's, case, it's kind of self-reinforcing yeah, for those exactly, dogs to bark. Dogs. Yeah. Um, and in either case, though, if we want to, if we want to stop the barking, the first thing that we want to do is prevent it. So, ways that we can prevent it is to maybe put some visual blocking on the windows, some window film, something that keeps them from being able to look out, so that they can't see the deliveries coming. Other things that you can do is have you can put instructions on the delivery apps or for food deliveries and things like that. You can ask them to put the you know, drop off the package in text and not, you know, please don't knock the door on the door. Uh -huh. So those are some things that you can have them do to make that whole process quieter. Um, I, for mail and for other packages, you can maybe move the location of your mailbox or set up a delivery, a lockable delivery box um, away from the door so that they don't have to come up to the porch or they don't need to knock or ring the doorbell. Um, but the, with the apps that are out there now, you can put oftentimes delivery instructions and you can put specific instructions on, on how they should do the delivery to minimize the triggering that your dog getting triggered. Would it be helpful also if you are, because you don't always know when that delivery is coming, but if you do happen to know, 
to keep the dog in another part of the house and give mm-hmm. the dog a incompatible behavior, as people like you say, because if the dog is chewing on, say, a toy, an appropriate toy, then the dog can't be at the same time barking. I don't think it's possible to do both. Yeah, exactly. I think that um, especially with food delivery, you usually you know, get a various text saying, hey, your delivery person is nearby. You can tell I've been getting some deliveries. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but it is something that you can then say, oh, okay, this person's going to be coming. I'm going to go ahead and move my dog into the, to the back of the house and let's work on something else. Let's turn the TV up maybe. Let's go ahead and give a, an interactive toy like you mentioned to have the dog doing something else and so if they're away from the window and doing something else, they're less likely to, and you've set up so that the delivery is happening in a quiet way, you're less likely going to be having that barking happening. Excellent. I have one more for you, and we only have a couple minutes left sure. here, literally. Uh, attention-seeking behavior. So let's say I am on the telephone and my dog is barking and barking, or I am speaking to my significant other, my wife, and the dog is barking, 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 or wants to get between us. And in these cases, it's attention-seeking, so assuming it's attention-seeking, what do you do? So the first thing that we want to make sure is that, you know, is there anything that, are there any needs that your dog has not, have that your dog has that haven't been met yet? So, you know, does your dog need to eat something or is their food, is their water bowl empty? Do they need to go outside? Um, so kind of run through that checklist first in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you know that, for example, if your dog is going to start barking, if you're going to get on a video call or a phone call, um, have some sort of, have some pre, pre-made frozen interactive toys ready and waiting so that you can grab one of those and give it to your dog when the, when the phone rings. Uh, maybe have it so that you, your if your loved one is about to call, have them text you first so that you can get your dog ready. So that they have are busy doing something mm-hmm. while you're on the, while you're on the phone. Um, you can then eventually, if you want to, you can teach them that hey, you can pr- pretend being on the phone while you reinforce them and reward them for quiet behavior. But in the moment, having something for them to work on can help manage that situation and prevent it from continuing. I will say much more information at your website. Well, your colleagues as well. Diplomates of the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists, that's D-A-C-V-B dot org. Dr. Vully Parthasarathy, thank you so much. Thank you. I'll tell you, she's one of my favorite cat book authors, Gwen Cooper, and she has a new book out. (laughs) Her books are always uh, written with some entertainment value, but also it's all about saving cats, as is she. Speaking of cats, next week is a cat show. Yes, we have a cat woman here. Well, she's about dogs, too. She doesn't want animals to suffer in pain. And now you can do something about it in the cat world as well. That Well, one year ago, we didn't even have this option. It's called a monoclonal antibody. That's a really fancy name for a drug called Silencia. The category is monoclonal antibody, and it doesn't go through the GI system like other non-steroidal anti-inflammatories do. So it doesn't seem to have side effects, or at least as many of them, as the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Dr. Tammy Grubb is an expert on this topic and how to tell if your cat is in pain in the first place. That's next week. Dr. Brian Scanson, a veterinary cardiologist, Colorado State University College of Veterinary Medicine. Let's talk heart disease in dogs. Anecdotally, he says, I hear more and more about heart disease in dogs. Is that because veterinarians have better stethoscopes? Or is that because our dogs are living longer than ever before. And at least to some extent, it can be a disease of older dogs. Absolutely, Steve. Uh, Thanks for having me. So we do recognize heart disease very commonly in dogs. 
I also have a sense that it is becoming more common. Underneath exactly why is a bit difficult, but it certainly is the case that our dogs are living longer as they get better and better health care, just like people. And we know that the most common heart disease of dogs, valvular heart disease or mitral valve disease, is a disease that develops in the older dog. So I do think it's fair to say that as they live longer, we see heart disease more than we ever did before. It develops in the older dog, particularly, I believe, small dogs, but can happen any dog, any size, any breed, any mix. Having said that, there's certainly a a breed disposition, predisposition in some breeds, also running in certain families. Can can you talk about that? Yeah, so the exact underlying genetics a lot of people are still trying to sort out but what is clearly known is that there is a familial aspect to this meaning certain families and definitely certain breeds have much higher prevalence of this disease than others and the the breeds that we recognize mitral valve disease in particular to be quite prevalent in include the small to medium-sized dogs with certain breeds, such as the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, Dachshunds, Whippets, Shizus, Lhasa Apsas, the smaller dogs, Chihuahuas, we do see mitral valve disease incredibly commonly. So it's absolutely the case that it's related to aging, but also the case that there must be genetic or at least family line tendencies that exist in this disease. And I want to add the miniature schnauzer in there. Uh, the mini yep. pin, the fox terrier, dachshunds, a very popular breed yep. a- as well. But it isn't always breed specific. I want to make that point, unless I'm incorrect, that it can be a, a, a dog you adopted of any breed, any mix. It could be your Heinz 157 that you happily adopted at a shelter at the age of five that turns out a couple of years later to be diagnosed with mitral valve disease, you have no way to know that it occurred in the dog's family. Or maybe it happened spontaneously, and it just happens. Is, is that all correct? That is correct. There, there's no secret, unfortunately, to avoiding this disease. We see it in mixed breed, Heinz 57 type uh, dogs. We see it in many of the, uh, the purebreds. It is not unique to any specific breed or and and similarly no breed is immune to developing it by some estimates 10 percent of all dogs will develop this and in fact 30 percent of dogs over the age of 10 are likely to have mitral valve disease and if you think about it i mean you could say 10 percent 30 percent those aren't high numbers but they are because we're talking millions and millions of dogs then and if it gets to the point of heart failure the end isn't necessarily tomorrow. More can be done. But I presume, Dr. Scanlon, what you want to do is still not have that heart failure occur and push that off way down the road as much as you possibly can. That's right. Heart failure results in a dog that has difficulty breathing, is coughing, and can be immediately life-threatening in severe cases. And so we absolutely want to treat it if it does develop, and that can still provide dogs with a good quality of life for months or even a year in some cases. Um, But it would be all the better to avoid it in the first place, to try and prevent or at least delay the onset of heart failure in a dog that has heart disease. Now, how can that 
be done? There's a few things we might consider. There, there can be surgical or catheter-based options to try and treat heart disease. Unfortunately, that's not often available or cost-effective for many families. It's also something that still is pretty much in its infancy for animals. And so the vast majority of dogs, we manage with medications. Once they go into heart failure, there are medications that can help to resolve the symptoms of difficulty breathing, uh, cough, shortness of breath, etc. But again, our goal is to try and delay that. And we do understand that there is one medication, Betmedin or Pimobendin, which when given to the right patient before heart failure, can delay the onset of heart failure, prevent those symptoms from occurring on average for 15 months in time. So that's wonderful, actually. Uh, In a dog's life, that can be a fair amount. In our lives, at least it's over a year of better quality of life, which sounds horrible because, I mean, you know, if your dog is diagnosed with heart disease, you don't want to hear, oh, a year, maybe, maybe more than that, a year and a half, whatever, uh, will prolong the inevitable. However, that's still a fair amount of time. I mean, it's it's sort of, it's, it's good news and it's not, if you follow me, Dr. Skansen, because you don't want to have a dog diagnosed with heart disease in the first place, of course. I, I agree with you completely. Uh, but I think the other thing to think about is, These are often older dogs. And so 15 months, in my opinion, can be a substantial amount of time. And and again, I think it is important to clarify that that's an average from the major trials that showed that. So that means some dogs may not have 15 months of time before they go into heart failure if they start vet medicine. But it also means some dogs will have more than 15 months of additional time before the development of symptoms and heart failure. And so I think in a dog that's maybe 10, 12 years of age, in my opinion, we certainly don't want them to ever develop heart disease. But if they do, if we can delay symptoms for over a year's period of time, I mean, that can be 10 or more percent of the entire lifespan of a dog. And I think that becomes very important. It's a good way to look at it. I want to talk about what the signs of heart disease might be, what our dog is trying to tell us if the dog is coughing, whether it's a respiratory disease or whether it might be heart disease. And there's another kind of heart disease. There's more, another kind of heart disease in dogs called dilated cardiomyopathy. We're getting a lesson in heart disease here from Dr. Brian Scanson, and we will be back on WGN. Dr. Brian Scanson, a veterinary cardiologist at Colorado State University College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Scanson, we're talking about heart disease in dogs, and I mentioned it, you mentioned it. I think you said that it might be increasingly common. Is that because we're paying more attention? Is it because our dogs are living longer? Or is it because, and you kind of answered this earlier, maybe we just don't know. I think both are probably true. I think we see that dogs are living longer, and as many of the forms of heart disease develop in the older patient, that probably plays a role. In addition, though, it does seem, depending on where you live in the country, that there are certain breeds that are becoming more and more popular. And because we know that certain breeds of dogs are more likely to have heart disease, I think that popularity of some of 
the, the breeds that have a predisposition to heart disease also may account for some of the seemingly increased prevalence that we see. So you go online after your dog has been coughing for a few hours on and off, and you look up a coughing dog. Heart disease is possible, but so is respiratory disease. So are some other possibilities, a lot of them, actually. So what do you do? Do you immediately say, I need to see my veterinarian? I think if your dog is showing symptoms or signs that are out of the ordinary, the the most important thing is to get them to a veterinarian, yes. And I agree with everything you just said regarding cough. Cough can be a symptom of many things. Heart disease is one of them, uh, but also pneumonia, lung problems, airway problems, all of those could play a role as well. And the, the individual that is equipped to help sort that out, as well as then to provide hopefully an answer to address it, is your family veterinarian. Are there other signs or symptoms that people should watch for? Yeah, in addition to respiratory signs, and I I want to include that beyond cough, a lot of dogs that develop heart disease will show signs of rapid breathing, shallow breathing, breathing. It can look like they're struggling to get a good amount of air into their lungs, So it's not just cough, but certainly cough could be an early sign. Also, difficulty breathing is a major symptom that we see. In addition to the respiratory signs, what we can see with heart disease is occasionally the dog is a bit more tired, not as active, not as energetic, or even in more advanced or uh, concerning cases, the dog can start to have fainting spells or collapse events. And when that happens, that should certainly prompt a trip to your family veterinarian to understand what's going on and then help them to prescribe a treatment plan to address it. You know, I'm a fan of, if you're lucky, part of it is luck, it not getting that far, where your dog is not showing outward signs. Now, again, part of it is luck, but part of it is also you've been proactive about seeing the veterinarian who takes that stethoscope and listens to your dog's heart on every visit for a reason. And maybe that irregularity, which typically would be a murmur, I believe, is picked up on sooner than later. Yeah, 100% that is the case. I think just like for you and I and, and people, preventive care is critical and helps us to avoid some of these more concerning issues. And so seeing your family veterinarian once a year um, to listen to the dog, to do a good examination of them for any signs, we know that animals can hide disease rather well. And so your veterinarian is equipped to look for clues that heart disease may be present. And absolutely, the stethoscope, listening to their heart sounds, is often the major first clue that the veterinarian has that heart disease could be present. Yeah, my veterinarian, things went way wrong. My veterinarian gave me the stethoscope and said, listen. And what I heard was, (laughs) who let the dogs out? It was very different than (laughs) what it's supposed to be. But yes, your veterinarian is listening. You're listening for a reason, and is trained to understand what that irregularity is, which could mean mitral valve disease. But there's another reasonably common heart disease in dogs, too, correct? 
Yeah, there are many forms of heart disease. The the other disease we see in the middle age to older dog, and typically larger dogs, as compared to the mitral valve disease, which is more common in the smaller dogs. The other disease that we see with uh, some frequency is dilated cardiomyopathy, sometimes abbreviated as DCM. And what is, without getting too technical, what is that? Yeah, so where the mitral valve disease is really just the, the plumbing in the heart, the valves failing to close, DCM is a disease where the muscle is dysfunctional. We know that the heart is a pump. It is what is pushing blood out to the body, you know, 70 to 100 times every minute. And when a dog has DCM, what we see on an ultrasound of their heart is that the muscle is not pumping effectively. And as a consequence, the heart enlarges or becomes dilated. And that's what gives us the term dilated cardiomyopathy. Similar question to what I asked with mitral valve disease is an early diagnosis and perhaps early treatment uh, a good idea? Absolutely. The, the two major complications we see of dilated cardiomyopathy or DCM are one, heart failure, very similar presentation to what we talked about for mitral valve disease, difficult breathing, rapid shallow breathing, potentially cough. But the other thing that we see more with dilated cardiomyopathy than we see with mitral valve disease is because that muscle is sick, it can start to beat erratically or have abnormal heart rhythms. And that can cause collapsing or fainting spells. It can also, unfortunately, result in sudden death for the patient. And so seeing the veterinarian getting to a diagnosis allows us to intervene to try and delay heart failure very similar to what we talked about with mitral valve disease, but it also allows us to screen for some of these electrical abnormalities, these abnormal heart rhythms that could put the patient at high risk for a sudden death event. And interestingly enough, uh, even though it's a different heart disease, uh, the pharmaceutical used potentially early on is the same one? Yes. So vetmedin or pimobendin is a drug that we know delays the onset of heart failure in dogs with mitral valve disease. We also know that in the setting of Doberman pinchers specifically, which is a breed that commonly develops DCM, right. when Doberman pinchers with dilated cardiomyopathy receive pimobendin, it provides a survival advantage for them as well. And so the treatment will be dictated by the underlying disease. Interestingly, in both of these diseases, Batmedin has been shown to have benefit. You know, we only have about a minute left here, but very quickly, I want to talk about the fact there's an app for that. Tell me about the free app called My Pets Heart, the number two, Heart. That's an app which allows the, the family, the pet parent at home, to keep track of the dog's respiratory rate or breathing rate. And the reason that's important is many times a subtle increase in their breathing rate when they are asleep and at rest can help us to detect progression of heart disease. So when a dog sleeps, typically their respiratory rate, their breathing rate per minute is about 15 to 25 breaths per minute. And what we see with heart disease, be it mitral disease or DCM, is that that rate can start to gradually increase before they show cough or exercise difficulty or overt 
respiratory problems. What you might notice is that the dog was breathing 20, 25 breaths per minute for the last several weeks. And then all of a sudden now when he's asleep, he's breathing 30, 35 40 breaths per minute. And that's that app allows a, that's, us to monitor these trends. Right. Yeah, sorry. No, no, that's okay. We're just stuck on time here. So I want to give the app is free, My Pets Heart, the number two, Heart. Dr. Brian Scanson, thank you so much. Thank you. Dogs look the way they do because of our selection for them looking the way they do, the way we have consciously or unconsciously bred dogs over thousands of years. And some of what we've done is really interesting. So, for example, eye colors of dogs. New research suggests that humans have influenced dog eye color more than we might have thought. A new study by scientists in Japan have found that dark eyes are more common in domestic dogs than they are their wild relatives. That is because we perceive dogs with dark eyes as being more friendly. A team of researchers says that dark eyes may subsequently have been favored by humans unconsciously during the course of domestication from wolves to dogs over many thousands of years. Researchers created 12 pairs of images and with one image of each pair showing a domestic dog with light eyes and another showing the same dog with darker eyes. A selection of these pairs was shown to 76 people who were asked to rate the dogs for various personality traits and how much they would like to interact with that sort of make-believe dog. And it turned out, what do you think? Most people said, I want the one with dark eyes. And there are people even today that get freaked out by looking at a dog that has blue eyes. You know, over the years, we've had two dogs with blue eyes, and I've seen that happen, where people get kind of like freaked. because. So my answer to those people, don't worry, it's just contact lenses. The dog's eyes are really darker, and they seem happier, if they believe me, which most people are smart enough not to do. But it's interesting that pretty much everything about dogs, everything, the other factor is we want dogs' eyes to look like human baby eyes, and that's why they are big and round. And we will be here next week, bright and early, on WGN.